but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And for prophecies, they will pass, pass away, and for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Rhonda. And if now we could all stand to honor the bride. is getting married this morning, at least here. Um, we're not even going to have a sermon on marriage, if you can believe it or not. Uh, at least for the first time in, in my adult life, I am going to consider 1 Corinthians 13 like in the context that it was written. All right. And we, we ought to hear this passage at weddings. So if, like, you had this passage read at your wedding, your wedding is not null and void. You didn't do anything wrong, right? You don't need to. I, I have read this passage and preached from this passage at weddings. And so if it, if it is wrong, I'm guilty as anybody. This is a great verse, I think, to have read at your wedding because it has, like, many, 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 many applications for the love between a husband and a wife. It's really helpful. But this is undoubtedly, like for sure, for certainly, the most well-known passage I think the Apostle Paul ever wrote, right? We hear it re referenced in song, in, in, in television show, in literature. Like people are at least vaguely familiar with it or really familiar with it. And the danger we face in the midst of all our familiarity with this passage, especially the center of it, is since we know it so well or have been exposed to it so often, particularly in the contexts in which we often hear it, almost in a way this verse can be tamed or domesticated in a way that it ought not. This verse can feel like that kind of sad moment where you go to the zoo and you see a lion in a cage and you just get the sense like, 
this isn't the right context, right? I want to uncage this verse for us this morning. See, this isn't sweet or sentimental. It's true, it's profound. Paul, in a, uh, in a poetic, yes, but powerful way, is bringing about like a light in the darkness in the midst of this church. This verse, even though it has a lot for marital love, it wasn't primarily applied to marriage, nor was it written about marriage. As we've verse by verse gone through the book of 1 Corinthians, it should be no surprise if you've been with us for a while that this chapter, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, comes after the 12th chapter and before the 14th. And this is all about, in this portion of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church about how a local church ought to live out and express the spiritual gifts for the common good of the church. And so chapter 13 is vital fundamental, essential to understand spiritual gifts. But to understand this chapter, we have to understand the context of the chapter in the Bible. See, when this passage of Scripture was for the first time, probably around 54 A.D., give or take a year, when this passage was read to the church in Corinth for the first time by one of the elders, letter sent from the Apostle Paul, as they got to the portion of this letter in this chapter, we ought not to imagine that this church like, got sentimental and warm and fuzzy in that moment. Like husbands and wives that were sitting next to each other didn't put their arm around one another and hold hands and lovingly look into one another's eyes and begin to scratch each other's backs, right? They didn't think, man, isn't our marital love so rich? I hope they felt that by the grace of God, but this verse wouldn't have led them there as to in the moment that they were living and why Paul wrote it. They wouldn't be holding hands. It's safe to say that they probably had their head in their hands. They weren't like batting each other or batting eyelashes at one another. They probably had their eyes cast to the floor because this verse would have hit them hard. This passage would have hit them hard as as a passage about love written in loving correction to a church that was living the gifts out void of love. And I'm sure what they were feeling was, was a sense of repentance, thinking, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. We've been so unloving to one another. We've walked in a way so far of the way that Christ has called us to walk. And as Paul is writing and they're hearing it, surely they were thinking, gosh, the, the path of love is so right and good and glorious. Jesus, help us walk in love. So this morning we need to be reminded of the context of the letter. So as we get ready to, to dive in, let's do what we, we always do a little later than we normally do it. Let me pray for you. You pray for me. I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, by the way. So. And we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians. So 13, let's pray with one another for one another. Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm so deeply thankful for this chapter and the ways in which it's shaped and formed me this week as I've, I've been studying and preparing for this moment. And in this moment, I, I pray that in a, in a far greater way, you would shape us all together. You would help me hold up the beauty of the love of Christ Jesus and 
live out that love in the lives of people. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, it's, it's such a helpful for rem- reminder for 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to, to look at how it's literally framed, like how it's literally bookended. If we go to chapter 12, verse 31 that Rhonda read, immediately preceding 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this love chapter, Paul writes, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And then immediately preceding the 13th chapter in chapter 14, and remember that Paul didn't write this with chapters. It was just all one letter, right? Immediately after the passages in chapter 13, Paul writes, pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So this church was struggling with lifting up the gift of tongues as some, like, ultimate sign of spiritual maturity, They were doing that gift. They were exercising that gift. They were practicing it void of love and then kind of lifting it above other gifts that were more helpful to edify the church as a whole, namely prophecy. And if we remember last week, we looked at chapter 12 where Paul was holding out this helpful illustration of the body being a a picture of what the church ought to be like, different gifts, different parts, together as one whole in unity. And in chapter 14, he's going to dig deeper into the gifts specifically of prophecy and tongues. But before he gets there, right in the heart of the the, the center of passages that are most helpful in all of Scripture about the spiritual gifts, Paul doesn't by accident insert some wedding notes. He doesn't get distracted and get artsy and bust out in poetry. He's like, hey, at the very heart of what you need to understand, local church in Corinth, at the very heart of what we need to understand, Frontline Edmund, when it comes to spiritual gifts and how we live as one body in unity and and give those gifts to each other as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, what we have to get right is love. Paul writes that no matter what gift a person is giving in the church, unless that gift is given in love, unless love saturates every gift, unless those gifts grow out of the very soil of love, the result is, he says in a shocking, astonishing way, is, and he's going to say it again and again, nothing. A church that has all the gifting in the world but lacks love is is a place of spiritual bankruptcy. See, this 13th chapter chapter exists because the church in Corinth, in the midst of all the gifts that they had, they lacked love. And the, the Corinthians were certain they were spiritual because of their gifts, but Paul wants them to see real spirituality is not marked by gifts, but it's marked by love. And so he's going to, to write in love to, again, in a real poetic, beautiful way, but in a powerful way and in a practical way. He's going to guide the principles of the gifts at work in the church. He's going to talk about the way of love, the more excellent way. And this word love in Greek here is agape, which is a word that many of us may be familiar with. It's defined as a quality of, of like warmth or care towards a person that, that is in the interest of another. It's an esteem, an affection, a, a, a regard it was helpful this week for me to read what pastor author Ron uh, Vaughn Roberts defines or expounds when he talks about agape. He said that agape love isn't so much emotion 
but an attitude expressed always in action. Agape is a decided devotion that directs the whole person to do gracious good, undeserved, unmerited good on behalf of another. Pastor Tim Keller once wrote, you don't fall into love. You commit to it. Love says, I'll be there no matter what. That's agape love. It sheds light on what Paul is writing here in this passage for us. So what does the church need to know about love and spiritual gifts? Three things, and this is going to just break down in three sections. I think it naturally does as a passage. The first thing that we need to see is love is essential for spiritual gifts. Love is essential for spiritual gifts is the first point that the Apostle Paul is going to make. He writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. See, Paul begins with these three kind of impressive and extreme examples, illustrations of what look like real, mature spirituality. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And surely Paul begins with the gift of tongues because, again, this church elevates that gift above all. And so Paul's going to say, hey, I'm going to start with what you value the most and say, hey, you can speak in the most impressive language, whether it be human language or the very language of heaven, church in Corinth. But if you do that without love, You're like a a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you hang around here on a Sunday long enough, about once every five, six weeks, somebody loses track of their five-year-old. And that five-year-old has been waiting and scheming and planning for the moment that they can get on that drum set. And it's never a cute moment, right? It can be the cutest kid in the world, and you're like, oh, that's horrible. I was just praying for somebody, and now it's just like, there's a crash just being ridden by somebody that doesn't know what they're doing, and it's, it's just not pleasant, right? That's what I think of when I think of this verse. But what the original hears, and I love, that's my kid 90% of the time probably. So what the original audience often thought of, or I, I imagine thought of, was they didn't have drum kits in, <laughs> in the church in Corinth. But what they did have is they had pagan temples all around the city temples to Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollo. And as a practice to call people to worship in those temples, we're familiar with the scene. There would be a a hanging gong or a cymbal, and they would be struck to call people to worship. And there was was the sound of idolatry being stirred up. It was the sound of empty religion void of spirituality. And Paul is saying, hey, you can... You can speak in all kinds of tongues all you want, but if you do so without love, church in Corinth, it's just like that empty spirituality that belongs to another place. Paul goes on, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, this is amazing. Who wouldn't want that? But have not love, I am nothing. 
Others in the church celebrated prophecy or understanding or knowledge or the gift of faith above all else. And, and, and those things should be celebrated, right, and valued. But Paul's saying, he, if I have the most remarkable degree of gifting and yet without love, it's nothing. He keeps on going in verse 3. If I give away all I have, gosh, that's impressive. Who does that? Or if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So holding out the the highest degree of the spiritual gift of generosity, if somebody's willing to give away everything they have, every possession, even their, their life. Now, some translations are going to talk about giving up a body to be burned. Others are going to say, give, uh, give up my body that I may boast. Commentators are going to say there's probably one of two things happening here because it's, it's a hard phrase to, to translate into English. And so in this church, probably at this time, even this early in the church, some people could have been experiencing in, in the wider church, not here in Corinth, but potentially in places like Rome, a martyrdom where because of faith in Jesus, you would, you would be burned. Or there was a practice in the ancient world where you could give actually your place to release somebody from slavery or prison. So regardless of whether it's actually in faith, like giving your life because of your faith, a martyrdom, and just entrusting your life, that even if you're going to be persecuted to the extent that you're going to suffer in in the persecution of literal fire, or if you're going to take the step to self-sacrifice, even to put yourself in slavery to free somebody else, how impressive, how astonishing, how powerful is that act of generosity and sacrifice? And yet, Paul says, you can do that without love, you, you gain nothing. Paul is driving home the point, love is essential For the spiritual gifts, it's like a spiritual math. The largest number multiplied by zero is always zero, no matter what you do in in spiritual gifts, no matter how impressive or how large or significant significant it seems, without love, it's always a zero-sum game. And when Paul writes about having love in these verses, he's not talking about a feeling. He's talking about action, the way in which we live. See, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians or any church, including us, to be foggy as to what true love is. And so he paints a vivid picture. He personifies love to help us understand. That's the second thing we need to see. Paul says love is expressed through spiritual gifts. And before we quickly go through each one of these verses, I just want to invite us all to pause for a moment. Remember that these verses are going to be written about life together a local gospel community, a church living life together. And I just want us to take a breath and take a beat and think about our gospel community. Think about your family, your friends, your community group, people you work with or study with, your roommates. The rubber meets the road in our lives when it comes to these verses regarding how we act towards one another, particularly as we exercise spiritual gifts. So Paul says, love is patient, meaning love is uncomplaining in the face of problems. It doesn't retaliate. It doesn't hold a grudge. To the extent that love, according to Romans 12, blesses 
those who persecute us. Love is kind, Paul says. That spiritual gifts are lived out in a way that are merciful and compassionate. Spiritual gifts seek to overcome evil with good, actively seek to, to, to do good. That spiritual gifts and love are on the move. Being nice is easy because it's responsive, it's reactive. But being kind is actually taking action with eyes open like Jesus, looking for people to serve and bless and do good towards. Paul writes in other letters about this type of kindness that would move towards a hungry person to feed them or a thirsty person to give them drink. Paul writes when it comes to us exercising our spiritual gifts in love, love does not envy. Coveting is wanting what another has, but envy moves towards anger that that person has it. I just had a, a silly conversation with my son yesterday because he's got an awesome scar on his left eyebrow. And I was just affirming that scar in his life. I'm like, man, that's the coolest scar. And he said, you're envious of my scar. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. I actually just studied this. And so I can tell you that you're wrong and I'm right because I'm not angry at you for having that scar. I just want it myself. That's a difference. I don't, I don't hateful towards my son because he has something that I don't want. That's where envy takes us. We're not just wanting something that somebody else has. We actually have disdain towards them for having it. It's a dangerous thing. But love rejoices with those who rejoice, weeps with those who weep. Envy does the opposite, right? Love by nature is going to lay waste to envy because love works for the good of others and wants the good of others, rejoices when they have something that blesses them. Paul's going to say love does not boast. Boast here translates to a phrase that means heaps praise upon oneself. Makes you wonder what Paul would think of our modern culture's definition and obsession with self-love. Love is not arrogant. When it comes to exercising the spiritual gifts and operating in the spiritual gifts in the local church, that means doing so in a way that doesn't have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Love's not like a blowfish. Romans 12, 16 paint a picture of love associating with the lonely. Love isn't wise in its own eyes, even when it's operating in the gift of wisdom. Think about that. Love is marked by humility. Love is not arrogant. And love is not rude. Coarseness, indecency, making others feel uncomfortable in sinful immaturity by being brash, offensive, being derogatory, harsh. It's not the way of love. But as spiritual gifts are shared within the church, they're done in such a way that seeks to honor, even outdo one another in showing honor. Love, listen to this. Love does not insist on its own way. Love looks to the interest of others. Wants to live in harmony and peaceably best it can. The local church, when we live out our spiritual gifts, Paul says, we do so in love that isn't irritable, meaning whether they're perceived or real, minor offenses don't trigger us into explosive tempers that 
love doesn't require anybody to walk on eggshells. Love is not resentful. In the Greek, it says love does not count the evil. Many uh, Bible translations, I love the way it puts it, uh, translates this verse, love keeps no record of wrong. Love doesn't have a list of names with grievances. Love doesn't plan or scheme to pay back. Love isn't rehearsing or pretending or, or having in its head conversations about, I wish I would have said this. I would have responded that way with takedowns and comebacks. Love isn't blaming all of its shortcomings and hang-ups and sins on the failings of others. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul begins to explain love's posture towards evil and truth. He writes, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love loves what God loves. Love hates what God hates. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It's going to hold fast to what's good. It rejoices with the truth. In verse 7, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love will deal with hardship for the good of the gospel and the good of others. Love is not gullible. When Paul writes, love believes all things, that doesn't mean love is gullible, but it means that love chooses to believe the best about others. It's generous. In other words, love isn't cynical. Love hopes all things. It wants others to flourish. It endures all things. Love is tough. Pastor and author Andrew Wilson writes this in his commentary, 1 Corinthians for You, which is really helpful all the time to me, but especially in this passage. Pastor Wilson writes, I am sure Paul would be thrilled, if a little surprised, to have heard that people would be reading his words at weddings 2,000 years later. But his intention but his intention was that nobody elevate prophecy over patience, healing over hope, speaking in languages over speaking in love. If I do that, however spiritual I might feel about it, I am nothing. Above all, Paul wants us to understand not just the, the essential need for love and spiritual gifts and how they're expressed and how we experience them in the church through the spiritual gifts. But above all, when it comes to the gifts in the spirit, the third thing and the most important thing Paul wants us to see in this passage is that love is eternal and spiritual gifts aren't. Love will never come to an end. Spiritual gifts do come to an end. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This Greek word, word, when Paul writes, love never ends. It's a profound three words that are worth just reflecting and meditating on. Love never ends. The Greek word here for ends is, is pipto. And it, it translates fails, 
in some of our Bible uh, translations, love never fails. It's, it's a word that can be defined as, as fall, like as in Matthew 10, Jesus says, a sparrow doesn't tiptoe from the sky without the Heavenly Father knowing, doesn't fall from the sky. So Paul is saying here, love never comes down. Love never falls. Love only rises forever and always. Love isn't going anywhere. Love has always been and will always be which makes a lot of profound theological sense when we know the truth that, that our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in three persons, one God has existed for all time, will exist for all time in loving communion, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in loving communion for all eternity, and that love has been made known to us in Christ Jesus, and that love has been poured out on us through the power and the presence of the Spirit. And that love lasts forever. Love never ends. But gifts do. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Why would would prophecy and, and tongues and knowledge come to an end? Because one day they won't be needed. Anna has a little sister, Molly. And Molly's husband is a coach on college basketball teams. And as a result, they move like every month, it seems like. I mean, it's just like he's to progress in that field means that like you just are moving to college, to college, to college. And so uh, as they've moved, they're just increasingly moving to hotter cities. <laughs> and so they moved to like Florida, Bradenton, Florida. They were there for like a minute, maybe like one season. Then they moved to Phoenix, Arizona. And Molly, as a result, is just giving away more and more of her winter clothes because they're irrelevant. Because she's living in places that are hotter and hotter, warmer and warmer. And she has these things that once kept her warm until her environment changed, her reality changed, where she called home changed. These things were once needed and helpful, but now they're no longer needed in her life. So what is coming that will make spiritual gifts no longer necessary? What one day will change in the life of the Christian for the church that will see gifts pass away? Well, Paul gives us insight in verse 9 when he writes, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So Paul's saying, hey, we're in a point in redemptive history right now. We're in a part as Jesus is bringing his kingdom now after the first coming of Jesus, where we know partially as a church, we prophesy only partially as a church, but but everything partial will one day enter into a place of completion when the perfect comes. And there has been lots of ink spilled and debate that has occurred around the idea of what Paul is talking about here, the perfect. And we're going to have an entire sermon in a few weeks digging into specifically verses 8 through 13 to try to hold up what that means. Why are spiritual gifts, why are there biblical reasons to believe spiritual gifts continue and they didn't cease, let's say, 100 A.D. or 400 A.D.? Because the question that we'll dig deep into that Sunday, but we need to address here, is the question of, well, what is the perfect? Is the perfect scripture? Is the perfect some level of maturity that the church should reach? Well, I think we get evidence at the very beginning of this letter when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, this 
He says, you are not lacking to the church in Corinth. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the gifts are given for us in this time, this imperfect time where death is still a reality and our sin is still a reality and things aren't as they were meant to be. The world is, is broken and groaning for renewal. And yet we, we sing songs, you're never going to let us down. And that means a lot. But why we can stand and Phil can lead us in choruses like that is ultimately what we're singing is, hey, Jesus, we believe that we, you are a God who always keeps your promises. And Jesus, you came once, and you promised you're going to come again, and you're never going to let us down. And we wait for the revealing of Jesus Christ. And as we do, God, in his grace, has given us grace gifts to build one another up and bless one another. And these are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Like in a cold climate, they're something that we wrap around one another to keep each other warm until the spring comes. Paul illustrates this with the remaining verses. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I think most of the time when I reference that, I, I do it much like we all do with this verse out of, or this chapter out of context. And I'll, that might be something that's referenced when you're just kind of exhorting somebody to grow up. Like, hey, you know, <laughs> when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, a reason like a child, but, you know, when I became a man, I put away those childish ways. So pump the brakes on the video games or, well, you know, <laughs> whatever we're trying to say to somebody we love. Maybe I'm prophesying right now. You never know. So take that for what it's worth. But that's not necessarily wrong, but that's not what the Paul is saying. The main point here, Paul is illustrating a point that for Christians, we have eternity with Christ to look forward to, which means that there's a a a growth and maturity that we will reach that like me as a 42 year old when I look back at myself at two that chasm of what I know now that I didn't know then that one day when we've been with Jesus for 10,000 years we'll look back at this time in our lives like that he says in verse 12 for now I see in a mirror dimly but then Face-to-face. Face-to-face is biblical language, especially in the Old Testament, of, of personally being in the presence of God. Now I know in part, then I should know fully, even as I've been fully known. Ancient mirrors were not like mirrors we have. They were polished metal, and you could see a reflection, but you couldn't see clearly. And Paul's saying, hey, now it's like we're viewing God through a, a dim mirror, but one day we will be in his very presence. We'll see him face to face. And he says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our family, at my fault, has had a regular practice of getting to a campsite when it's dark, when we were planning on getting there in the light. And there, it's, it's an unsettling experience to like drive into the Gunnison National Forest and it's pitch black and you're like, I think this is where we're supposed to be. Let's get out the headlamps and, and set up camp. And you can see reality. You can know your surroundings. And you can, you can dwell there. You can live there. And yet when the sun rises, it's different. And you know and you see, 
and you behold in ways that you couldn't during the night in the dark. One author put it this way. One day when the Son of God returns, the spiritual gifts will be like beautiful stars that fade from view as the sun rises in the morning. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love is a, is a favorite trifecta of the Apostle Paul. He talks about them often. Faith is trusting in God for what we can't see. Hope is trusting God to do what he promised. And even these two, as great as they are, are temporary in the way that one day faith will no longer be needed because our faith will be sight. Hope will no longer be a reality because hope has become a reality. The things that have been promised will be fulfilled. But love, love always has and always will last forever. Love lasts forever. So as we go about living with one another in the church, when we go about operating in the spiritual gifts, we get to go about eternal endeavors. Go about the very kingdom building that will last forever, that will never go away as we receive God's love and we exercise and operate in the spiritual gifts as we love one another in Christ Jesus. We're going about things that will last for all time by the grace of God. What better thing can we set out to do together than love one another for the glory of Jesus and to build one another up? And that is what is ultimately essential when it comes to spiritual gifts. Let's stand and pray. As we so often come to this moment, Heavenly Father, I'm deeply grateful for the reality of these verses in the life of this congregation. When we look at love personified as described by Paul, just empowered by you, Spirit of God, there are stories upon stories upon stories of the reality of love like this in the life of families and community group and friendships. And so in the midst of our gratitude, though, we, we pray that you would continue to grow us deeper in maturity, deeper in holiness, deeper in agape, like actionable, on-the-move love, present in the spiritual gifts, alive and active in this church. That regardless of what we do, like if we're leading or serving or helping or prophesying or teaching, laying on hands of healing, that the gifts would just be signposts that point us first and foremost to the love of Christ Jesus and, and be expressions of the love that we have as the body of Christ that reflects that love to one another. So would you increasingly do this among this congregation? Let us be people that walk the path of the more excellent way, the way of love. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said.